ahead and take your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to another edition of EA's The Green Dot, a podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Chris Henry, the museum manager here. And to my left is my partner in crime. (laughs) Hal Bryan, EA's managing editor for print and digital content and publications. Awesome. Thank you. Good to to have you back uh, here with me. It's uh, always a blast when we get together and do these. Absolutely. I feel like the Batmobile is complete. We're kind of both in our right seats here, ready to rock and roll. Uh, and with us, uh, two special guests. Uh, we have with us Greg Boss Woldridge, uh, Blue Angel number one, flew on the team. We'll talk about uh, your experience in the Blue Angels. And uh, also with us is Matt Irish Garretton. Matt, uh, you're uh, one of the team, one of the historians uh, for the Blue Angels, and you have a, an amazing aviation career yourself. Well, I don't know. I go that far, but it's been fun. <laughs> Actually, uh started flying when I was a young boy. My dad was in the Air Force and B36 guy and Oh, wow. I was the one who caught the uh aviation bug from him. I started flying general aviation, really got uh, It's kind of like owning a boat. You know, better to have friends who own boats. <laughs> I had a lot of friends who owned warbirds. And uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, I got to fly a lot of heavy metal. Came up to Oshkosh my first time, 1980. Wow. It was like uh, I was a kid in a candy store that was much bigger than my appetite, but I tried to devour all of it. (laughs) We all do every year. (laughs) Um, Have about a little over 10,000 hours and uh, got out of aviation for a while and got into the wine and spirits business. Uh, very successful on that. And when I decided to self-retire from that industry, I got back into my two big passions, which is uh, aviation and writing. So I I wear a lot of hats these days. I serve as the uh, editor-in-chief of the Air Traffic Control Association. Uh, There are two publications. I am the executive director for the A7 Corsair II Association, the executive director for the River Rats, a Vietnam-era uh, founded a nonprofit that uh, does some great things for uh, students uh, pursuing aviation careers. And um, I also serve as the print historian for the Blue Angels Association. Oh, that's a lot of hats that you're wearing. A lot wearing. of hats. Yeah. It is a lot of hats. <laughs> um, so, you know, you first got into aviation uh, from your dad. The minute you said B-36, I started picturing the movie Strategic Air Command, oh, Jimmy Stewart. I can Six turning and four burning. And- yeah, yeah. He said it's like flying your uh, three-story house from the front porch. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, you do a little down yoke, and about two minutes later, the plane responds. <laughs> Sending messages to the engine room via the telegraph. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a great picture in my uh, office of my two boys. Uh, I, and you probably still have it on display, the original big uh, tire. Uh, from the main mount for the B-36 uh, oh, when they yeah. were doing the, the single wheel. Um, but uh, have brought my boys here a couple times. Oh, that's fantastic. Very cool. Super cool. Um, boss, how did you how did you first get into to, to aviation? What was your first intro? I got kind of roped into it. Although <laughs> I, did, I did like making model airplanes as a kid, the Scorpion and some other of the earlier jets. And uh, going up to the top of the Carew Tower in Cincinnati and uh, sailing balsa wood airplanes off the top of the skyscraper and watch them go down. That was kind of fun. Wow. Anyway. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I kind of lost interest in it, and I went off to college and 
barely got through, and but then it was time to go and serve, and I had my degree, and I had a, a son then. I was married. And it's time to think about what am I going to do with my life to make a living? And so when I applied for naval aviation and went in front of a screening board of Marine F-4 pilots in Olathe, Kansas, the reserve guys, I said, what do you want to fly if you, if you if we let you come in? I said, I want to fly the biggest, ugliest thing you got with the most most engines so when I get out, I can fly for the airlines. <laughs> so these Phantom pilots, they just shook their head. You know, hey, we need fodder. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get you in, but you're heading in the wrong direction. But when I got to Pensacola in AOCS, Aviation Officer Candidate School, and uh, out on the grinder marching in the heat and the sweat and everything else and watching the blue – Blue Angel Phantoms fly overhead. That uh, that was pretty motivating. So you <laughs> might say I was like one of those little kids that decided to be a naval aviator. I was one of those older kids that saw them fly overhead. Say someday I want to fly jets, right? So that's that's how I got into it. Wow, that that's super cool. Oh, very cool. Uh, so uh, Matt, do you want to kind of step in and then? Tell us a bit about the the forming of the Blue Angels before we get to the Certainly. the point where where Boss came aboard. Well, you weren't in 1946. Were <laughs> no. A little bit before uh, your time, uh, just I, a little bit. I yeah. wasn't even a twinkle in 1946 <laughs> in my dad's eyes. I don't think. Well, April 2nd of 1946, uh, Admiral Chester Nimitz uh, was thinking about naval aviation. About six year or six months prior, we had won the war in Japan. Peace was at hand. And with peace comes a uh, depletion of wartime budget and resources. And um, he was trying to figure out how he could get the Navy's fair share. And there had been some flight demonstration squadrons that were part of active duty squadrons in the Navy, but nothing formalized. But on April 2nd, he sent a, a note, a message to Rear Admiral Ralph Wagner, and Ralph Wagner was in charge of Naval Aviation Training Command, which at the time was at NAS Pensacola. And he said, I'm ordering you to look at the feasibility of standing up a demonstration team for the Navy to help promote, recruit, and stay really top of mind with you know, senators and legislation uh, to get the Navy's fair share of the budget. He, in turn, Wagner, reached out to his contemporary down in Jacksonville, another rear admiral by the name of Ralph Davison. And Ralph Davison was in charge of Advanced Air Training Command and said, okay, we've been tasked by Nimitz to do this. I'm tasking you to do it. Get it done. And Davison immediately thought of an inspired choice, Butch Voris, who was one of his advanced instructors at the unit there in, uh, in Jacksonville. And he said, okay, Butch, I need you to put together a feasibility study of putting a three-man team together to, to fly air shows and to keep the Navy front and center with the public's uh, mindset. In less than 73 days since Chester sent out that note to Wagner, the Blues were flying their first show. So wow. that was the uh, F eight uh, Bearcats. Uh, no, it was the F six. Oh, F six. Excuse me. Yes, F six before the Bearcat. Yeah, they the looked at the Bearcat. First. Interesting thing. They looked at the Bearcat. They looked at the Corsair. They decided on the F six F, mainly because there were a lot of them in Jacksonville. 
at training command and as a cost-cutting measure. Um, but about six, six months after the formation of the team, Nimitz had his opportunity to see him uh, in Corpus Christi. And he said, hey, if we're going to have a team that is this good, we need to be sporting our Sunday best, which at the time was the Bearcat. So in, in the same year that they were formed, they were flying Bearcats by the, before the end of the year in 46. That's amazing. I can only imagine what that sounded like. Oh, yeah. You know, we'll hear, you know, we'll get Hellcats and Bearcats flying here. It's, it's rare to have more than one up at the time, but just, you know, three Hellcats. Uh, and it was three uh, originally, yeah. or did they? They bailed out four. One is a spare. Okay. But uh, it originally started as a three ship. Ah, oh, that noise would just be mm, magic, be wouldn't it? Amazing, yeah, absolutely. But you know, the story goes on from there, of course. Uh, and as uh, Boss mentioned, uh, the team recently celebrated their 75th anniversary, and uh, it's uh, easily the most recognized, the most famous, the most beloved uh, military flight demonstration squadron. It, it started as a team, but it became a squadron. 1970. Yeah, early, uh, early 80s. Early 80s. Yeah, yeah I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, and uh, they're renowned the world over. Wow. And rightly so. Anybody who's seen a show knows. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, Boss, can you tell us a little bit about the, the progression of your career and how you've ended up in the Blues? Cause I, but I know there was, there was assignments before the Blues. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. You come in as the flight leader. You come in as a commanding officer flight leader straight from the fleet, having commanded a squadron before, hardly ever does a wingman become the leader. So somebody always asks, don't you have to fleet up, you know, advance from flying wing up to be the lead? No, you just come in and lead. And they want that command experience, right? So I had a lot of tours before that. Uh, had a lot of setbacks in my career. I had a lot of second chances, which I am uh, you know, the happy recipient of. Uh, leads to my glad to be here, the motto of the Blue Angels, you know, glad to be here for what you get to do and the people you get to work with. So I, I, uh, I'm sitting in the ready room, uh, in the Dan Buster ready room on the Midway when it wasn't a museum. It was actually, <laughs> a, and, uh, and I, get, I see this naval message, a precursor to emails, right? And it says, hey, we're looking for a new flight leader for the team, you know, put your application in. Yeah, I, I, I thought, oh, you know, you, you get these dreamy things in your head, right? And I said, they'll never pick me. Uh, and I'm just kind of talking to myself and the junior officers in the ready room. I said, come on, Skipper, you've got to give it a try. You'd be a great Blue Angel lead. And besides, you'd get us front row, front row seats at the air shows, you know. <laughs> I said, yeah, you knuckleheads. Uh, but I thought about it, you know, if you never, if you never try – if something's available, if you never try, you're never going to know. you, you got to know, right? So I applied, and the competition for the flight lead that year was uh, the CEO of Top Gun and uh, a fellow that had been doing the F-14 demos on the East Coast. He was just a you know, a, a perfect showman, per perfect guy for the job. So I got real relaxed. I said, they'll never pick me. <laughs> I'll, I'll never be picked, you know, and, and then – oh. They pulled me outside the room and said, you're the guy we want. And I was just shocked. So that was my – the beginning of the journey is uh, Blue Angel lead. Uh, and then a couple things, we, neat things we got to do that were outside of the normal parameters of the team. We 
if you want me to digress into you know we took the we saw the opportunity and I made sure that we got to do it to go to Russia and a military to military exchange program and fly over Moscow with an wow. air show and at the same time we had set it up so that we had two seaters and we were able to, and they had, and it, we worked with the Russian Knights, their aerobatic team that flew flankers predominantly right. at SU-27s. And we had it all set up so that we could fly. I flew their flight leader in my backseat of the F-18, and he flew me in the backseat of the flanker. I mean, that was that was one of the highlights of my career. Um, so uh, so about what year would that have been? Uh, 92. 92. Okay. Yeah. And what were you, uh, what were you flying Prior to that, or when you had your command? F-18s. So you, you were yeah. in the F-18s. Yeah, one of the earlier squadrons on the midway. Okay. The only way I could ensure that I would get to fly the F-18 as, as the commander was to take the duty forward deployed on the midway in Japan. Wow. And it was great duty, though. It was awesome. Now, did you, uh, you know, not to go too far back, but I'm curious what other types you would have flown uh, prior to that. If you can just step us through the, the list real quick. Uh, I had two tours flying A-4s, mostly in an adversary, and you'll hear the word adversary, but Air Force uses the word aggressor role, teaching American forces how to handle the, the type of tactics you'll see from others. So right. we, we learned those in the A-4. Uh, got to do that for two tours, and I had two A-7 tours in the fleet, uh, VA-25 and VA-22. I had one staff tour that I still flew, so I flew every tour. I never went to Washington, never went to a ship, never had wow. a Pentagon tour. So that's how I built so many hours in the Navy, and then I got to command. And so I commanded the, the Dam Busters of 195. Fantastic. And that's how I got so, oh, oh, well, by the way, this is kind of a – so my career was bizarre. So I got my wings in in the jet pipeline. Uh, so I was I was destined to go fly jets. Well, they overtrained too many pilots. Too many guys got their wings. And they sent a lot of – a lot of folks didn't even get flying tours after they got their wings. They sent about 50 of us back to the training command to fly students. We were called the Filthy 50. <laughs> and I, uh, that's what we called ourselves. I I went to VT1 at Softly Field in Pensacola and taught primary flight training in the T-34B. And I did that for two and a half years. And you would think, oh, you got your wings and jets and you go back and fly a, a propeller. I, it was one of the best tours I've ever had, teaching people how to fly and the, the satisfaction of watching them solo. And it was terrific. So that, that, but that's odd. You know, that's one of those odd things. You go, how did you... Right, an how interesting that, turn. And, how does and, that fit uh, into a career like that, right? A career, yeah. but wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Wow. So can you tell me a little bit about what, what is the training like when you first get accepted to the Blue Angels? What kind of, what kind of training regimen is there, and, and what are some of the things you did? You start out in fleet normal spacing, right? Uh, and you just start learning. The onboarding is really cool. I spent about six weeks as the mini-boss not the boss, you know, watching watching how things go, learning the culture, which is crucial. It's a great culture of trust and gratitude. Learning that, uh, absorbing all the procedural things that made, made the squadron safe in a lot of ways. Um, and the way they had fun, which was good. You got to, you got to, and, and the way, and the way we humbled each other, the teammates humbled each other to keep 
you know, keep that rock star thing down. Uh, so absorbed a lot of that, and then we started flying, and I we flew a little bit. So the change of command was about the first or second week in November. And so we go into our winter season, the the non-show season, right? So we start flying in Pensacola maybe once a day, take some time off for the holidays because half the team has changed out. Half of the six airplanes change out every year, uh, the, the, the manning of them, the pilots. Uh, so we had to start easing into it, uh, showing the new folks, the newbies, how that works. And we flew a little bit. Uh, up through the holidays, and then around the 1st of January, we took everybody, all the whole kit and caboodle except families, cars, dogs, cats, kids, none of that. We went to El Centro, California, in the Imperial Valley, in the desert, where it's not too boiling hot in the wintertime, but nice, just nice weather. And we started flying twice a day, six days a week, until the middle of March when we flew our first show in El Centro. That that was the the training cycle, if you will, and that's what we did. And you come in there, and you have a lot of self doubts when you see what what needed to be learned. Uh, so it was a challenge. We got it done because the, the the culture of it, the tradition of it, the way it was done in, over the years was extraordinary. It works well. So you mentioned over the years, and Matt, let me bounce back to you for a minute and can you kind of walk us through the aircraft progression that the blues uh flew after the bearcat uh in 1949 they uh, transitioned to the panther the straight wing grumman panther jet uh they flew two variants of that the dash two and dash five big difference uh power plant uh more than anything and then i'd have to look at my dates i don't have my crib sheet but uh after the the straight wing Panther, they went to the swept wing Cougar, the F9, F8. And I believe that was 1956 or 55 through uh, 59. And from there, they flew another Grumman aircraft, the F11 Tiger. Did that from 1960 to 1968 or 1959 to 1968. Uh, then they went to the Phantom II, the F-4J, flew that from seven or from uh, 69 to 74, and then the A-4F Skyhawk, which uh, they flew from 74 through. It was, yeah, it was about 86, 87. Then they flew the Hornet, uh, and they've been flying variants of the Hornet, uh, the Legacy Hornet, if you will, the. Uh, up until 2000, and they transitioned to the current mount, which is the Super Hornet, uh, in 2000, which they're flying today. 2020. Mm-hmm. 2020. Oh. Yeah. My math isn't so good. I, w- I went to <laughs> University of Georgia. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was, uh, what was it? They started flying the Super Hornet in 21, I think. I'm, I'm yeah. mistaken. 2021, because that was the 75th anniversary. So not only was it a banner year for history, yeah. but but for a brand new airplane, brand new airplane and the Super Hornet being a different airplane than the Legacy Hornet, oh, bigger. Yeah, yeah they uh, and when they were transitioning to the Super Hornet, they were actually accepting a new uh, logistics airplane, a new Fat Albert uh, C-130. So it was a lot of changes that year, all for the good. Wow. 
Can you give us a sense, uh, thinking again about this progression of aircraft and how we've you know moved through and evolved? You know, starting with three. Um, at what point did they start adding aircraft? Was that uh, was that with the Panthers, the Cougars, or with the Bearcats? Was with the Bearcat at, as, as well? So the Bearcats would have been. Would they go to? Uh, what was the number? Was it four? Was four. it six? They went went to four. Okay, uh, and at that time, with the Hellcat as well as the Bearcat, they they had a, another airplane in the routine, which uh, was known as Beetle Bomb. It was a uh, in the F six era. It was a uh, SNJ, and um, it later became a Bearcat with the transition to the Bearcat, painted bright yellow. And it would be used to uh, replicate a Japanese an, or an enemy, if you will. Oh, sure. And they'd uh, pretend to shoot it down. Um, but that's something. And when did uh, Fat Albert, the you know wonderful C-130 logistics airplane, first come around? And, and was there a dedicated logistics airplane with a name prior to the 130s? Great question. No, uh, you know logistics was important, but it was never uh, formalized. Um, Originally, it was a uh, a base uh, aircraft. They had a Super Connie, didn't they? Mm. Well, they had a Super Connie, but before that, it was a DC-8 uh. or DC-6. And before that, it was a uh, variant. We were talking about it earlier, the uh, uh, DC-3. Oh, with the, yeah, with the C-117, square. yeah. Oh, C-117 yeah. or an R-4. Or, um, okay. But it, it became pretty clear that they needed a dedicated force and aircraft to to take care of things um fat albert came to be in 1970 okay. and that was when they went from the super connie beautiful airplane but i i would hate to be the guy to be the load master trying to figure out how to load and unload that <laughs> right. airplane that into shows. that long slender fuselage yeah. right but uh they they transitioned to the to the hercules the c-130 and that's what they've been flying as support ever since was the uh, was the C one hundred and thirty almost immediately brought in as part of the show, which it is now, or was that something that was kind of added in later? You know, uh, that is a really good question. I wish I had the answer. Yeah. I would have to talk to Tony Less or somebody like somebody that. Somebody from the seventies, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it it became with the uh, arrival of the C one hundred and thirty, the uh, visibility became greater for the marine component they had their own brochure at, at air shows and and they saw uh just like nimitz did in 46 the the opportunity to recruit retain and make people aware so it became uh it was their billboard yeah it was a highlight for yeah. a lot of people at the air show because they they attached these jet assisted takeoff oh, bottles yeah. on the sides very fun and they did this very short roll takeoff and the nose would go like 30 or 40 oh, degrees yeah. nose up with those jet those rockets on the back you know i mean it was uh they did that up till not, about 10 years ago i guess when yeah. they ran out of jado <laughs> <laughs> but the new c-130 that you mentioned it can do the same profile without the jado bottles it is amazing no that the super hercules that they're flying now actually uh, was built for the british uh and when they were looking for a replacement, uh, they were down for uh, almost two years, and uh, they uh, completely gutted it, uh, got it uh, up to spec for their needs. Uh, and in talking with everybody who who's ever flown this uh, variant of Fat Albert, they say that the plane does not like to slow down. It is fast. It is slick. 
it it can do anything we want it to, including, as Boss said, the Jado profile, just with its own four engines. That's just incredible. It's you know not the first thing you think of uh, describing a C130. As much as we love them, slick isn't the first word that comes to mind. <laughs> it's uh, uh, no. you know it's a it's yeah. a big, solid, uh, heavy hauler. You know, one of the most you know versatile airplanes, and certainly one of the longer serving airplanes uh, out there in the it's fleet. It's iconic, yeah. And, and you know what? It helped help the Blue Angels out a lot to have organic your own logistics support sure. and we take our troops to the shows you know 30 40 troops in the airplane with all the toolboxes all the spare parts and if we needed an engine during the show weekend that albert could fly to jacksonville cecil or wherever oceana now and lamore and get an engine and bring it back and we could change an engine out before the show day the next day but that was the beauty of having that dedicated support cannot be overstated it was terrific that is remarkable i one quick question for you uh matt and and boss you may want to plug your ears i might say a, a bad word or two but i've always wondered um if you have any sense uh as you study the history of of the early days of the team in particular why the air force lagged so far behind i mean you know it, by the time i came around I was a kid going to air shows in the mm-hmm. 70s you know it was thunderbirds and blue angels and kids had their favorite and you know mm-hmm. that sort of thing but uh you know the i, I don't recall what year it was but you air force had the sky blazers mm-hmm. with the f-86s and you know eventually sort of evolved into the thunderbirds but did, did you ever come across any reason why the the air force seemed like they were playing so much catch-up back then uh I guess the short answer is no. In, in a way, actually, the Blues were playing catch up to the T-Birds. They were the, the, the Thunderbirds were the first pl- uh, group to have a plane with an afterburner. Oh, and gotcha. at that time, they were flying the Cougar. Right. And uh, Boss at the time made the argument to CNO, "We need something that's going to make a loud noise at air shows," and that's why they went to the F-11. Um, but as far as I don't know. Boss, you have any well, thoughts on that? The, the Blue Angels are actually a year older than the United States Air Force. <laughs> uh, that's that. true. You're older than the Air Force entirely. That's a great <laughs> But, but you know, the, it, it was way. the Army Air, Air Corps, obviously. Sure, yeah, but Army but Air it's, Force I always get a kick out of the fact that the, in in existence, the Blues are, are older than the than the Air Force. Anyway, so. <laughs> hey, that's, uh, that's a better answer than I might have hoped for. So there we go. <laughs> So as you're 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 now trained up and in the blues, when you when you go to fly your routine, I always wonder: Do you um, like right now and in, in your head? Do you still know your routine? Like, do, does it get that emblazoned into you know which maneuver you're doing and what's coming next? And can you walk me through that? About once a month, Chris, I have a, a dream at night that I'm being asked to come back, and it's <laughs> like, "Come on, boss, we need you this afternoon." And I'm going, "Wait." And then in the dream, I'm going, okay, the, the diamond will start out with a diamond loop on takeoff with the left turn out, followed by the solo, solo maneuver. You know, Gucci's going to do this, Thumper's going to do that. And I start going through, reciting it through my head. And it's starting to drift away a little bit, but it's it did stick with me. And, and was that really the the key to developing those routines you talk about flying twice a day for this, yes. you know, for so long? And it, it truly just came down to 
repetition and practice and Absolutely. practice and practice. Yes, sir. And I imagine through that whole thing you, you talked about, I, I think you use the term fleet distance. Yeah, the, what the you'd beginning. fly in the in the fleet. You know, so five, a, a five typical or, five or six feet apart. In what formation. we call a sane formation yeah. Yeah. <laughs> versus this eighteen yeah. inches of clearance yes. between wingtip and That's canopy right. and things. And and is that a are there milestones for that? Like by week three, we better be this close or this close, or is it just we're just going to get closer and closer and closer and the more comfortable we are and with the more repetition? The latter of those two options, and okay. it was uh, proving to each other that we could do it. And we, as I talk about it now, I talk about elevating your beliefs and what you can do, and through the process of debriefing and and then going back up to setting those belief levels again, you get to the point where you know. You can move it in closer and do it safely, and that's that's how we progressed. And by the end of the season, um, it, we didn't used to publicize this. Now the team does. They're down to twelve inches in some maneuvers. Twelve yeah. inches, good lord! So. And you say by the end of the season, and and uh, I've I've heard over the years with the demonstration teams that that. You know, you've got these practice sessions getting closer and closer to go ready for show season. But are they closer and tighter at the end of the season than they are at the beginning? Absolutely. Because the belief levels and the experience and the training all bring that together. Wow. And you can do that. You can, and you can do it safely. And, and I'll go back to the element, the two elements in the culture of the Blue Angels. One is the sense of gratitude, mostly because of the people you get to work with. Great team. The bonding is incredible because of respect. But also part of that that concrete foundation of gratitude is the rebar that runs through that concrete, and that's trust. And the trust is worked on every day, and it's developed through being vulnerable, being transparent, and taking accountability for whatever you do, responsibility for it. So it's, it's all into the formula, right. and, it, and it works beautifully. That sure does, from from our point of view. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's it's for always sure. amazing. It, it, I always wondered, and I heard a story years ago, and I have no idea if it's true or not, that when you guys fly so close together, that any time you hit like what I would call like like an air pocket or turbulence, it affects you guys as like one big airplane as opposed to correct. Is that correct? Correct. As long as I, as the flight leader, don't react, because then we all just bump up the same amount, right? There's no. Uh, there's no separation or, or, or jostling of the airplanes together as long as I don't react. So I used to say, you know, okay, it's going to be bumpy out there today. Hold what you got. Don't flinch. I'm not going to flinch. We get bumped. We're just going to all rise up and then settle back down. In Chicago, we'd fly down the lakefront there, and you got those skyscrapers on, on the south of you there. And we'd fly along, and the nose would cant into the relative wind, and then as the wind got broken again, the, the formation would slide back out. It was that dramatic, but I didn't react to it. I didn't change, you know, try to change the heading or anything like that. But up and down, sideways, no, you just don't react. And so you are close enough together that you all move the same amount. Wow. That's really incredible. That's something I'd never, I'd never thought about that. And is that, is that just, again, more and more practice, practice, practice to develop the instincts not to flinch and to just ride it out, and not worry about the bumps. It, it wasn't hard for me as the lead. You know, you just accept the fact that it's bumpy out here, and you don't have, you know, if you're at 700 feet, you don't feel like you get bumped up 10 feet and you got automatically correct like you would if sure. you were a single airplane, maybe. Right. So you just ride it out. You know, it's rough. It's we used to call it 
there's a sense of texture in the air today. You know? <laughs> <laughs> a very poetic way to yeah, put it. I like yeah. that. It's, how's yeah. the weather? Well, there's a bit of texture. Sure. Ooh, I like that. Better yeah. stay on the ground. Yeah, we want silk. We don't want burlap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, do you have a do you have a favorite? A favorite show you ever flew, someplace that you just hold special that you that you did, or even one maybe one performance that you really enjoyed the most. Well, you know, we flew in San Francisco and for Fleet Week, and then uh, a Seafair in Seattle. Those were great, just huge crowds and yeah. great places. Beautiful to get away with murder flying between skyscrapers and things like that in <laughs> Chicago. But in my heart, the most satisfying was flying in like Quad Cities, Iowa. Where the you know the veterans were hanging up oh, on the chain link oh. fence, you know, and you're going, yeah. oh, you know, this is, a, you know, you're touching people with what you're doing, right? You're touching them at the heart level, and that's that was the most rewarding thing. And of course, it went to Moscow. That was kind of that was kind of wild too. Yeah, that's gosh, that must have just been just been amazing. It was. So I've got to ask the uh, when you're in the back seat of the the uh, flying with well, the Russian knights, yeah, yeah. and you're in the back seat of that was SU twenty seven, right? Was the flanker? Yes, yeah. Was there a stick back there? And did you did you get any yeah, stick time? I got to fly a little bit. It no. was the most powerful airplane I've ever flown in. Really, terrific airplane and and great flying qualities. But one thing I noticed, I guess I can say this now, I could tell by the avionics that it was about twenty five years behind us. Right. And I and I liked that because then I knew yeah this I could I could handle this <laughs> <laughs> whether you're uh, inside the cockpit or uh, say under other circumstances you might meet up <laughs> or in another cockpit <laughs> yeah sorry, the cockpit of your own so but flying with the, the flanker was an awesome airplane but ours was more nimble um, and I think we had we had about twice as much flight time as the Russians did as the Russian knights they were coming out of the Soviet Union era. Right, breaking down into individual states, and uh, they were suffering economically. One thing that was pretty poignant, we flew one of our air shows over Kubinka, where we staged south of Moscow, and we brought all the expats down from Moscow, defense industry or whoever whoever was there, Americans, and we uh, what we were going to do that afternoon, that day, was fly our show, and then the Russians were going to fly their show, the Russian Knights. We flew our show, and the Russian general said, "Yet, <laughs> he wouldn't let their team fly." Really? And I don't know if I, I, I sense that it was to save face. Just too tough an act to Just follow. Just couldn't exactly. Wow, that's that's really something. Uh, now, before we kicked off the uh, episode, boss, they were, uh, we were having a, a very interesting discussion about another project that you're involved in, involving yeah. the blues. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what's uh, in the works coming yeah. up for next year? Yeah, yeah it's going to be extremely fun. <laughs> I, I I had the idea about three years ago, four years ago, to make another documentary like the one we had done about the team going to Moscow in 92. Rob Stone produced it. It won a Cable Ace Award before the cable companies were into the Emmys and Oscars and stuff like that. So I called Rob uh, four years ago because we were coming up on the 75th anniversary. And on that 75th year, um, in, in, uh, 40, in uh, 2021, we could make a documentary about that. We had enough lead time. And so Rob and I struck out to try to do that and get corporate sponsors, do it on a low scale, you know, a documentary style like he had done with Blue Angels Around the World Speed of Sound, but with the same beauty that he created in that documentary. 
So we tried to get corporate sponsors, and we were moving along pretty well until the coronavirus hit, the, the COVID, you know. So all the sponsors said, hey, we're duct taping our wallets, you know, forget it for now. And then I was lucky enough to, to find a uh, an actor um, who was in Top Gun Maverick, Glenn Powell, and he, he loved the idea, and we finally sold it to him, sold it to Bad Robot, J.J. Abrams' company, and sold it to IMAX for their 1,800 theaters worldwide and in the IMAX quality of film. That's going to so be incredible. IMAX said, we'll do it, and uh, we got the production company to do it. Finished production about six months ago, the last stage of production, now in post-production, where we go into colorization and developing the the, uh, the music and making sure that matches up. We think we'll be out about Memorial Day. That's the best guess right now. Amazon is our streamer, and they have a, a play in the timing of that. Wow. That's going to just be fantastic. And I think you'd mentioned that uh, you're working with another uh, friend of EA's, Kevin LaRosa. Yes. On that too. I was heavily He's, involved in Devotion he and, is, and Top you know, Gun Maverick. And, I've never seen anybody as professional as he is and disciplined and that says a lot coming from someone who led the Blue Angels for crying well, yeah. out loud. You know what? He he was he's of the Blue Angel quality yeah. of risk mitigation, risk assessment, uh, problem solving, and uh, having a vision, a three three hundred sixty degree vision of how things should happen. And in his helicopter, he took some great stuff for us. It, Groundbreaking! You're gonna you're gonna just be blown away by it. You know, we do a uh, uh, we have a big outdoor theater every year. That's uh, that's one of the things that I work on during Air Venture. Big eighty foot screen. It's not IMAX, but um, we'll be uh, knocking on your door to see what's possible about uh, maybe getting it out there. Maybe maybe not. We'll see. That would be terrific. But during uh, during Air Venture. During Air Venture. Wow. Yes. Uh, wouldn't that be fun? That, that would be, be amazing. So, that would be super cool. Yeah. So no promises, but uh, just be warned. I'm going to be asking, <laughs> oh, that's, that's and I'll great. be bugging you. I'll be bugging Kevin. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll go knock on J.J. Abrams' door. I'm yeah. sure he'd be happy to see me. <laughs> you know. Uh, oh, like, it's that Star Wars nerd it's, again. It's Hal again. <laughs> yeah. Hal. Yeah. There you go. Oh, that's fantastic. That did you have? Um, did you have much of a chance to? To fly media, or was that usually number seven only? And you never. It was always it? number seven. I never got to meet the the athlete, athletes, you know, the superstars or the actors or uh, influencers, as they call them now. You know, <laughs> I never got to meet them because we were getting ready to go practice, and seven was out. The two seater was out flying these guys and ladies around, so I, I hardly ever got to meet them. Ah, uh-huh. well, that, that was my next question. I was going to ask if you had a favorite. So, uh, but I was never. I was never you know, shy of them. I never was, you know, I never felt like, oh, oh my goodness, you know, I'm just another person, you know, another wonderful person. Now, you have the distinction of uh, being one of the only commanders, if not the only commander, to to serve multiple tours, right? Right. Um, Did did you do two or three? Three. They said, Waldridge, we're going to give you one last try to get it right. (laughs) (laughs) So, So I got three chances. Wow, that is incredible. That is that really is something. Uh, do you have a sense? I don't want to put anybody on the the spot, but even just round numbers, uh, any idea how many bosses there's been over the years? I think about thirty. Yeah, wow. that sounds I think right. I'm going to say around thirty. Wait, Matt, you think yeah. that's about right? So, and even if you, yeah. uh, and then if you extrapolate that out to team members, I mean, we're we're talking. Um, 
and in this case, thinking particularly about the the formation pilots in in particular, not to not to uh, at all disparage the the rest of the group. It's a substantial organization, but I'm thinking about those those pilots. I mean, there's there's more astronauts than that. There's more. That's a that's a small small group, it a is. small fraternity, isn't it? It is indeed among the pilots, and even when you do include the the ground crew and the marine, the marine contingent, that's and when you that's a small family. When you when we look at the blues, you got to go all the way to the bottom and then up to the top. One hundred and forty people, and and it's exclusive in that regard too for the enlisted folks who were the top dogs, top right. notch men and women, Marines and Navy. So it was a Marine and Navy proposition. And one of the things that used to be tradition was that the, the number two person in the formation on the right wing would be a Marine always. So, so a Marine was always the boss's right-hand man, you know. Oh, wow. But that, that's kind of drifted to where the Marines want to fly the solos where you're ripping it around. You know, <laughs> they want to do a Marine thing, right? So, <laughs> so one of the solo pilots has been a Marine for a long time. But uh, it, it varies. You know, I, I guess I'm guilty of not realizing that outside of Fat Albert, that the uh, Marines were were fine slots in the Blue Angels. I, I don't yep. know why I just always thought they were. Yep. No, they're gold uh, wings. You know, like wow. like the Coast Guard and like yeah. the Navy. You know, they right. wear gold wings and they're they're part of our fighting force. And Except they've got those different ranks just to make it complicated. I know. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, a Marine captain says to me, "Hey, captain," you know, he's thinking I'm a captain, like a captain. You know, <laughs> right. wait, so, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> There's I, a I couple a, of tears in between those I two get captains. A kick out of that, yeah. So, uh, what did you do when you retired from the Blue Angels? What was your next uh, your next adventure? Well, the last time I led the team, I had to have an extension on my retirement, so I was retiring uh, from the Navy. And what I did then was uh, went to the best flying job outside of the military, and that was with FedEx. Great. I mean, you walk into the briefing room at FedEx and there's half of your squadron members are still there, you know, and they're going, Hey Skipper. And I'm a, I'm a flight engineer and they're a captain, you know, so on a, on a big airplane and I'm just, Hey, what's going on? It was just terrific. And, and working with FedEx, what a wonderful company it treated us so well. That's really great. And a, a strong tie between FedEx and uh, the devotion, the production there with Fred yeah. Smith and yeah. his his daughters yeah. working as yeah. the producers there and Black Label, is the yeah, and it. and what a uh, what a great uh, commitment that is to just the the yeah. the worlds of history and aviation and the importance of telling those yeah. stories. A lot of that goes right up to Fred Smith, yeah. terrific guy. He he was going to help us with our original effort to make the documentary on the Blue Angels, and then. Uh, when we got the big companies involved and uh, things changed, but he was willing and he was, he just loves aviation and he loves the Blue Angels. Fantastic. Oh, that's super cool. And I, you know, I mean, and really there's a story with, you know, uh, with devotion that if it wasn't for people like Adam Makos and, and the Smith family, that I don't think that story would be as out in front of everybody right. uh, as it is now. Yeah. Well, and Glenn Powell played a a, a big yeah. role in that uh, in yeah. that too. Of, yeah. He was Hudner, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and pushed hard to uh, to help get the picture made. Yeah, yeah. he yeah. did. Yeah, very thankful. There's not a lot of movies made about the Korea era. No, and it was it was like we were going to have our Blue Angel movie be like the third part of that trifecta of Top Gun, Maverick, Devotion, and then the Blue Angels. And it it is like that. A little more spacing than we would want to, right. but uh, it's kind of. Wow, I think it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Can't wait to see it Thank here you. at Oshkosh, hopefully on the big screen. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Not putting anybody on the spot. No, but, no uh, pressure, you know, but yeah. uh, we've got to oh, do that. Yeah. we got to get that done. That would be really cool. Yeah. Um, is it interesting to go back and watch the Blue Angels now? Uh, 
do you get to see them much? And uh, I was on almost every production shoot. So we went to the major ones, Seattle, San Francisco, Miramar in San Diego, uh, followed them over to Hawaii in the 2022 year, and, and at Pensacola half a dozen times, and a bunch of other places we went with them. So we got uh, up close and personal. It was terrific. And the, and the fabric, the culture is still super strong. And the diversity of the team. By the way, uh, this year was the 50th anniversary of women in the Navy, in, in naval aviation. 50th anniversary of women with gold wings in the wow. Navy. And one of the cool things to highlight that is that this is the first year the Blue Angels had a woman in the formation. Amanda Lee, call sign Stalin. <laughs> I don't think you want to mess with her. <laughs> I, I, I'm already frightened. <laughs> but she's terrific. She really is. So that's, that, that, that was uh, groundbreaking this year. Terrific. Oh, that's fantastic. Fantastic. The, um, speaking of that, you, you mentioned Pensacola. Is it, you know, the Pensacola, you can go behind the museum there, the National um, Naval Aviation Museum. Uh, and when there's practices, watch. Is that kind of like a homecoming when you're performing for sort of the, the home crowd? Or what, was that a different uh, sort of feel? It's a routine practice. Okay. Really, it is. And you try to avoid that making any spots special because you want to do things exactly the same way, the same approach. To, the, the, the only time I ever got the adrenaline rush is when that once a year we would – meet up with the Thunderbirds, either in Las Vegas or in Pensacola. We'd alternate years, and each fly a show. My wife said, you look like you're going into combat. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a manner of speaking. <laughs> this is the deal. This is the real deal. You know, All in good fun, but you were so keyed up to, to do your absolute best. But otherwise, flying back to the museum, flying in, at home in Pensacola, a, a practice show, same stuff. But it was great to meet people more. The local people. Great to meet the local people because the museum hosted that autograph signing session at the end of the practice oh, wow. every week. That was good. Right. Oh, that is fantastic. Well, thank you guys both so much. I know we're fighting the clock, and you're here, uh, as folks that are listening to this, uh, uh, you're here in Oshkosh. We're recording this in the museum, yeah. uh, and you're here for the speaker series that we do um, usually the third Thursday of every month. Uh, sometimes that gets jostled for different things, but uh, uh, we already have the next uh, year's lineup up, so please check out uh, the website. But thank you guys for traveling out here uh, to be part of this and to speak to our community and our members here tonight. A real pleasure. This is a, this is a gold mine out here. What you guys have, terrific. Matt, thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's one of my happy spaces. So any <laughs> any chance to come over to Oshkosh is is what I'm going to take. Is this I, your first time in the off season outside of uh, the big? To-do? No, I, I'm. I live in the Twin Cities, so oh, okay. I'm, so you're not that far away. Yeah, we come over to uh, explore the museum a couple oh, times. Wonderful. Yeah, just yeah. the first time somebody comes, if they've only been during, you know, if they've come to Oshkosh only during Oshkosh, yeah, it uh, it's a little jarring. I remember my uh, my first time. I just thought, wow, it's like going to your hometown, and you know, a bomb's gone off. Where where is everybody? <laughs> where is everybody? Where's, <laughs> where's all the stuff? Where's all the cool things? But, I can actually uh, get into the restaurant. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you always put it best, Hal. And it's the thing that I always like to say is that you said when you leave here you knew that the show ended but you in your head for some reason you always thought it was still going right you kind of imagined <laughs> that it was always there happening you could stop by any time it just worked out better to come that last week in july and then uh, you know then for me 14 years ago moved here and yeah. and uh, and it's still even now it's still a little bit weird to go down to the grounds 
yeah. outside yeah. of the show. And Chris, you're a transplant as well. I know you feel that same way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Same thing. We, and I usually drove them around the grounds. It was, yeah. uh, it's, it's a like ghost town. Totally yeah, it's a ghost yeah. town. Yeah. A little strange. But th- we have a great museum that we are open year round. We always try and encourage people to come out and uh, not just for the museum, but for the events like the speaker series. So, so thank you guys. Thank you for your stories. Uh, sharing some time with us. I uh, can't wait for tonight. And thank you to everybody who's listening. Uh, it's because of you that uh, we do these. So thank you for the feedback um, that uh, you you share with us and uh, and all of your responses. And we're just really thankful to have you all here as listeners. Um, and uh, keep on listening because uh, we have more of our great guests coming. And uh, and again, as always, uh, again, thank just thanks for your support. And uh, tune in next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot. Mm-hmm.